Session 10. Three Ways to Read the Bible. Session Overview. Reading for Information. Reading for Transformation. Formative Reading. Application. Exam. Discussion Guide for Mentor and Participant. Learner Objectives. At the end of this session, you should define and explain the significance of reading the Bible for information, transformation, and formation. Appreciate the privilege and need of making balanced Bible study a lifelong pursuit. Devise a plan for an ongoing, balanced study of the Bible. Introduction This boy will go far. Nikki loved candy, gooey nougats, orange slice gels, lollipops, chocolate bars. He loved them all. But times were hard in the neighborhood in which Nikki grew up. Bread was hard to come by, let alone candy. But Nikki had a plan and a special source for candy. Every Sunday, the priest would give candy as a prize to the boy who memorized the most Bible verses. Nikki was a bright boy. He studied the Bible hard. And almost every Sunday, he won the sweet, sweet candy prize. This boy will go far, the priest would say to Nikki's mother. He's storing the Word of God in his mind. The good priest believed that if you memorized the scriptures, you had learned them. So he stressed memorizing Bible verses. Besides the regular Sunday competitive recitations, he scheduled Bible quoting meets the way some people do spelling contests or basketball tournaments. If you had to give out candy to get boys to memorize scripture, then you gave out candy, peppermint sticks, caramels, jelly beans, and for the tournament winner, a big bag of mixed candy. So Nicky worked hard. He memorized the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For one tournament, he recited the whole Gospel of John, having to be prompted only four times. This boy will go far, the priest said. He's storing up the Word of God in his mind. Well, the good priest was right. The boy did go far. In fact, he became the number one leader of his country. Communist Russia. You see, the boy who memorized all the Bible verses, the boy I have called Nicky, was better known as Nikita Khrushchev. Under his rule, God was outlawed, preaching was illegal, and people were forbidden to read the Bible. David Nail, used by permission of the author. Nikita Khrushchev had memorized the scriptures, but had he really learned the scriptures? At what level had he learned them? Informational, transformational, or formational? Nikki's story demonstrates that a balanced approach to Bible study is vital. It is not enough just to get information from the Bible. Even memorizing content doesn't mean that the formation or transformation will occur. Reading for information is important. Informative reading concerns the content of the Bible, the facts about the Bible, and its background in a particular historical setting. But just getting the history straight, memorizing facts, or reading the Bible to win an argument is not enough. In fact, reading for information alone is a misuse of and a disservice to the Holy Scriptures. Quoted by Mel Lawrence, The Dynamics of Spiritual Formation, page 64. Reading for transformation must enter into our study of the Holy Scriptures. We must submit ourselves to the text, letting it enter into us and cleanse our hearts. Some have called this moving from reading the Bible to letting the Bible read us. Reading for information is an effort to master the text. Reading for transformation is letting the text master us. 
Richard Fisher said this is the kind of reading in which the mind descends into the heart and both are drawn into the love and goodness of God. Closely related to transformation is reading for formation. Formative reading is devotional reading for spiritual growth. The goal is to permit the image of Christ to be formed in you through study and meditation. In this module, we will explore each of these essential forms of Bible study. Three Ways to Read the Bible Reading for Information Naboth and His Vineyard, 1 Kings chapter 21 After reading 1 Kings chapter 21, consider the following questions. Number 1. What are the moral or ethical questions? Number 2. What are the legal questions? Number 3. What are the personal questions? Number 4. What are the political questions? Number 5. What are the theological or religious questions? A matter of information affects the answers to all the above questions. Without the information, one struggles to make sense of Naboth's story. Beyond the obvious ethical questions, the story has powerful legal, political, and religious significance. In ancient kingdoms around Israel, the king owned the land as well as everything and everybody on it. In Israel, however, the king was the Lord, Yahweh. The land belonged to him. This did not change when Israel clamored for a king. Yahweh still owned the land, not Saul, the newly appointed king. Israel did not call their early monarchical rulers kings. Rather, they were called heads. Part of the fine print distinction was that the sacred land belonged to God and not the king. All Israel knew that God was the true king and owner of the land. God's land was subdivided to every household in Israel. Lest anyone forget to whom the land really belonged, the farms are redistributed by drawing every seven years. Let's say that a certain township had 50 farms. The family who worked farm number 12 for a period of seven years at the next drawing might draw farm 39, 18, or any other number. The homestead a family drew could not be sold because it did not belong to the family. It belonged to God. And seven years in the future, another family would work that farm. Not even the king could own land permanently. See the Preacher's Magazine, MAM, 1981, page 18 through 22. The Greek historian Herodotus, along with other scholars, noted this rotating system of land tenure. It was a noble idea, but the plan got in trouble when David took the throne. David faced a tough job when he united the shattered kingdom of Saul. He hired Egyptian managers and mercenary soldiers from Crete and Philistia, but David had no money. He paid off his debts by giving the foreign debtors permanent land grants in Israel. They chose the best land, and they did not have to submit to the seven-year rotation plan either. It was not long before the Hebrew kings started keeping land as if it belonged to them personally. Soon, the land grab was on. By hook or by crook, one schemer after another pushed the common people off their land and took permanent possession of it, forcing the poor into debt and slavery. Prophets like Micah and Isaiah thundered warnings. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 8, King James Version. If the foreigners got to keep their land, the Hebrews were bound and determined to own land too. Almost everyone forgot the old seven-year rotation of land that signified the covenant with Yahweh, the true king and owner. Only a few conservatives, a few religious throwbacks to the covenant, even worried at all about God as owner. Among those who did remember was Naboth. When Ahab, the head not king of Israel, wanted to buy it, Naboth refused. 
He was not being hard-hearted. He was standing up for the covenant with God. Ahab, I couldn't sell you this land if I wanted to. It is not mine to sell. It belongs to God. And furthermore, Mr. Head and not King, you have no legal right under God's law to be trying to buy this land or any other land you've been buying up. Naboth's challenge was a legal, political, and religious challenge. But more than that, he challenged a worldly system that was making Ahab rich. Ahab's plan clashed with the covenant. Ahab did not care, but Naboth thought it was about time someone stood up for God and his law. That is why Naboth died. He would not acknowledge Ahab as true king or as a legitimate buyer. Ponder these questions. In what ways does this information affect your understanding, teaching, and devotional use of 1 Kings chapter 21? In what ways does it shed light on your previous understanding and feelings about this biblical event? Lexio Divina is Latin for divine reading. Today, it is called spiritual reading or reading for holiness. You come to Lexio Divina with an open heart. You are not trying to master history win a doctrinal argument, justify your past behavior, or get today's chapter read. You are simply presenting your open mind and heart to the Lord. Lexio literally means reading. It signifies a different kind of reading than we often engage in when reading a newspaper or a text. This reading is reflective, gentle-paced, one bite at a time. It means reading if you had a love letter in hand. The question behind our reading is God, and asking, What are you saying to me? Meditatio translates as meditation. The mind work of meditation allows our minds to focus and concentrate on the meaning of the text. Active imagination can help us find connections between our life stories and the great story of God's redemptive work in us. Meditation engages us at the level of the heart in its biblical sense, where memory, experience, thoughts, feelings, hopes, desires, intuitions, and intentions are joined. This is where we are likely to discover what a given passage means in our lives personally or as a community. Oratio means the prayer that naturally flows out of our meditation. It is the cry of the heart to God that arises when we have heard ourselves addressed through the word. Oratio allows the full range of human responses, hurt, anger, frustration, confession, repentance, thanksgiving, joy, adoration, praise, etc., to tumble forth in heartfelt prayer to the one for whom we are made. Contemplatio means contemplation. It is an entrance to the presence of God. Contemplation is essentially rest, play, Sabbath time, and God's presence. Here we are receptive, open, listening to God, and responsive to His voice. We enjoy the simple pleasure of the presence of Jesus. From Marjorie J. Thompson, Soul Feast, page 25-27. through 27. For centuries, Christians have found that Lexio Divina cleanses the soul, thus the label, reading for holiness. Try this exercise. Read by giving emphasis to different words. Let them soak into your soul. As led by the Spirit... Offer a meditation or prayer, written, spoken, or wordless. Notice that Bible study and prayer merge and blend and flow from one to the other. The following reading from Isaiah is one way of practicing Lexio Divina. Note the sequence of text, emphatic repetition, and meditation and prayer. The whole passage is not restated in the text selection. Only the parts the Spirit put into italic for the creator of this exercise are included. The meditations or prayers are those of the author of this exercise. 
but the last meditation and prayer section is blank. Fill it with your own meditation. You may then wish to go back to the other verses and add your own prayers or meditations. Text, Isaiah chapter 57, verses 13 through 15. Text, When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. Verse 13. Emphatic repetition. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. Meditation or prayer. O God, have I set up idols in my soul? Have I taken the deepest hungers of my heart to idols for satisfaction? Do I turn to praise, achievement, worldly possessions to satisfy the hunger for God? Break down every idol, O Lord. Help me depend only on you. My idols are playthings of the wind. Text. The man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Verse 13. Emphatic repetition. The man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land. The man who makes me, God, his refuge will inherit the land and possess God's holy mountain. Meditation or prayer. O oh my God, be my refuge, my safe place. You are my safe place. But why do I seek you, my refuge, so seldom? Make me hunger for your land. Long for your holy mountain. May I thirst for you, my refuge. Text. This is what the high and lofty one weighs. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in the high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Verse 15. Emphatic repetition. I live. I live with him who is contrite. I live, I live with him who is lowly in spirit. The high and lofty one, whose name is holy, lives with the contrite. To revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. Meditation or prayer. The reader supplies. Formative reading. Formative Bible study, as used in this module, embraces both informational and transformational concerns and practices. On the informational side, it endorses seven principles of Bible study by Tremper Longman. Number one, look for the biblical author's intended meaning. The meaning of the text does not change, and this should be determined before one starts making applications to one's own life. Number two, read the Bible passage in context. Is the text you are studying a transition, introduction, summary, or is it the second point of three the author is making on a broader theme? Number three, identify the type of passage you are reading, i.e. Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 is a hymn. Micah chapter 3 verses 9 through 12 is a doom saying. The type of literature makes a difference. Number four, consider the historical and cultural setting. The Naboth story illustrates the importance of this. Number five, consider the grammar and structure within the passage. If you run into a therefore, see what it is there for. Number six, interpret experience in the light of Scripture, not Scripture in the light of experience. Otherwise, you are likely to be reading your own ideas into the Bible. Number seven, 
Always seek the full counsel of Scripture. If a passage you are considering seems obscure or unclear, check out what the rest of the Bible has to say on this theme. Bible concordances, dictionaries, and commentaries are helpful in this and many other ways. Objective as it is, however, the Bible is not a paper pope from which we can extract infallible judgments every time we need to win an argument or a doctoral debate. Early Protestants, who had just excommunicated the real pope, were tempted to make of the Bible a paper pope with which to hit each other over the head. What a trivialization of the divine revelation! From Shaped by the Word, Upper Room, 1985. On the formative side of the equation, we have other considerations. Informational reading is linear. The reader covers as much material as possible. It has, according to Robert Mulholland, a problem-solving mentality that drives us to be judgmental and analytical. Formational reading, however, is reading in depth to capture the dynamic of the message. Speed is not nearly as important as openness to the mystery of God in the Word. The approach is humble, detached, willing, and loving. It is relational rather than a functional approach. As in transformational reading, we invite the text to master us rather than trying to master the text. Another way of saying this is we invite the Bible to read us as we read the Bible. The informational and formational aspects work to keep us from imbalance. The devotional life is subjective by nature. Add to that our cultural intoxication with individualism that says truth is different for each of us and you have a lot of private and improper interpretation of Scripture. Bible study that begins with me and my felt needs is not legitimate. We must first establish what the text says and what it means. The meaning does not change just because you have a new temptation, your child has rebelled, or you lost your job in the downsizing craze. First, get the meaning of the passage. How it applies to you will change as you change. We are not free to make the Bible say whatever we need to hear. Though our felt needs are urgent, and the Bible does often speak to them, the Bible does not exist primarily to help you feel better, reduce stress, find joy, peace, or self-actualization. The Bible is the revelation of God in Christ and the gospel Jesus came to demonstrate. To reduce Bible study to self-motivation, mental hygiene, or to psychological upcheering is to trivialize both the Bible and the spiritual life. What it means to me. Walt Russell. Discover the Word, page 83 through 90. Methods of Formative Bible Study. Explorer's Method of Bible Study. Number 1. Observation. Notice every word. Use the shifting emphasis method. Notice what happens when you emphasize different words as you read aloud. Number 2. Interpretation. What does the Bible text mean? What does the context contribute to the meaning? Step into the shoes of the Bible characters in the text and view the issues from their point of view. Number three, correlation. What have others said about this text? Compare what you have gotten out of the passage with the interpretation of others. Check your study Bible or a concordance to see what other Bible passages speak to the same issue. Check a reputable Bible commentary. Number four, evaluation. Ask questions like these. What part of this passage is particularly valuable to me right now? Why am I glad I read this passage today? Number five, application. Lord, what do you want me to do with what I have read? Asking the text questions. Number one, what does this passage tell me about God? Number two, what does this passage tell me about Jesus Christ? 
Number three, what does this passage tell me about the Holy Spirit? Number four, is there a sin to avoid? Number five, is there a command to be obeyed? Number six, is there a prayer to make my own? Number seven, is there a promise to claim? Number eight, what does this passage teach me about myself? Number nine, what does this passage say about Christian service? Number 10, is there something here I should memorize? Number 11, is there something here I should share? Number 12, is there an example to follow or avoid? Stepping into the scene. The step into the scene methodology is very old. It got into Wesleyan heritage through Richard Baxter in his 17th century book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. John Wesley reprinted this book in the 18th century. This is not some new age concept. It has been in our tradition for a long time. A. Read Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. B. Get the scene in mind. It's early in the day. Jesus has called his disciples together for a staff meeting. It is going to be a long day. Already, Jesus' fame is spread, and a huge crowd is spreading out before them in a valley. But before the preaching, teaching, and miracles are to begin, Jesus called the staff meeting. They are on a crest of a hill, partially hidden by cedars and boulders. It is still cool where the shaded staff meeting is taking place. Jesus is lecturing his dozen disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, comforting them with God's providence. Chapter 12, verses 4 and 7, and sharing about faithful witnessing for Christ. Verses 8 through 12. A self-absorbed joker who demands that Jesus settle a financial fight then interrupts his staff meeting. By the time Jesus gets around to answering, the crowd has surged forward. The staff meeting is over for now. And Jesus addresses the throng. Read verses 13 through 31 again in the light of this scene setting. C. Respond to these items. Number one, imagine the Bible scene before you. Number two, what is the temperature, the weather, the time of day? What sounds do you hear? What scenery? What smells are present? What animals are there? Number three, step into the scene yourself. Who is standing on your left? Your right. Number four, how is the person next to you dressed? How was Jesus dressed? The disciples. Listen to the dialogue, the parable. Catch every word. Don't miss anything. Number six, notice the characters in the story. A, the multitude. B, the disciples. C, the questioner. D, the rich fool. E, Jesus. F, God. Number seven, with what character do you identify most? Which did you resist most? Number eight, what did you perceive Jesus' mood and attitude to be? Number nine, did you get any new insights into the meaning of this Bible passage? Jot down your feelings, insights, and ideas. D. Step out of the scene and write a letter. Step out of the scene and think it over. Then write a letter or email message, three or four paragraphs to one of the characters. Tell them whatever is on your heart. Here is one letter the student wrote to the man who interrupted Jesus with a financial problem. He called the guy Harvey. Dear Harvey, count on you to mess this up. Did you ever miss the point? You have not one clue as to what the gospel is about. Not an inkling of what the carpenter has been teaching all along. That it's better to make a life than make a living. He showed you how trivial your problem really was. 
As kind and tender as Jesus is, He wouldn't give your problem the time of day. Now, if you had been confessing your sins, you would have had His undivided attention. But no, you wanted to grab an inheritance. Talk about selfish. And speaking of sins, I imagine that you have plenty of them. You strike me as the sort of guy who runs a pawn shop and charges widows and homeless folks 200% interest, right? Read the Wall Street Journal more than the Bible, right? You did achieve one thing. You became famous. Centuries of Christians now know you as the dunce who interrupted Jesus with a question so selfish that it provoked the parable of the rich fool. Could you see yourself in that parable? Probably not, but I sure did. I saw you, and you looked a lot like me. Sincerely yours. Closing thought. When world-renowned theologian Karl Barth, the father of neo-orthodoxy, made his last visit to America, a Chicago reporter asked him publicly, Dr. Barth, what is the most important truth you have discovered in a lifetime of study? Barth replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. From Discover the Word, Everett Leadingham, Editor, Kansas City, Beacon Hill Press of Kansas City, 1997, page 121.